For this week's episode, I chatted with Stephanie Fu. She's worked as a radio producer for This American Life and Snap Judgment, and she's freelance for podcasts like The Cut, Nancy, Reply All, and 99% Invisible. We talked about living with CPTSD, how to support a partner healing from trauma, and what a healthy, boring day looks like. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound. As someone who also lives with CPTSD, I was kind of wondering if you would take us through a normal day with you, what a normal day looks like for you. Let's say everything goes right, everything that you've kind of carefully balanced, maybe you have a routine that you stick with in order to just make sure that everything feels predictable. Routine isn't that crazy important for me, actually, but generally, I mean, I do have one. You generally wake up at like, Eight, and then make breakfast and, you know, take a shower and clean the house a little bit maybe, and then sit down to work. Well, if it's a nice day, I might go to the park and volunteer there for a couple of hours. I move invasives at Forest Park and it's really calming and grounding and it makes me feel like I'm doing something sort of positive for the environment. But usually, I'll either get to work between 10 and noon, and then if it's a writing day, it'll be more like I start writing at noon. If it's more answering emails and doing other stuff, I'll start at like 10 and then work until about six or seven, and then make dinner, and then eat dinner, and then... I don't know, maybe hang out with a friend that night, or... My life is really boring. I hope that you can tell. It's like, I I don't really have an interesting schedule to give you whatsoever. So that's interesting, because as you're going through your schedule, and you know, you say say it's boring, but boring is kind of, I think, a really good indication that you're doing well. That's my understanding of it, just from my own personal recollection, when my schedule just is like, cool, I'm getting sleep taken care of, I'm getting food taken care of, I'm getting to work and things are are functioning well. What does a wrench in your gears, so to speak, look like? Like, what upsets that balance? Would it be not getting to bed at a certain time? And how does that alter the rest of your week? Or are you at that stage in, in your healing? Because obviously CPTSD is, can be a, is, is generally a lifelong thing. I know there are studies that show that there are some treatments that can mostly heal good portions of it, like ayahuasca treatment was one that was floating around for a while people were really looking into. But. I've not tried ayahuasca. I mean, I'd be open to it, but mm-hmm. you know, I am at a point where unless it's like something really horrific that happens, I can, it's, it might mess up a day or two, but it's not going to mess up my whole week. Probably if something really triggering happens, certainly like I can spend the day triggered. Like for example, book sales right now. Oh. <laughs> like I, I told myself I'm going to look at book sales at night instead of in the morning. Cause if I look at them in the morning, then I start freaking out that I'm not selling any books. And then I like go into this mode for the entire work day where I'm just like, hustle, 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 hustle. Good. <laughs> or if something really triggering happens. I might be like, well, I guess I'm not getting any work done for the next hour. Or 
if it's really horrible the next day, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and I might just think, okay, I need to just go watch TV for an hour or maybe I need to go lie down or just go for a walk, things like that. And I don't really punish myself for needing to take breaks to calm mm. down from a trigger or anything like that. There's a part in your prologue and it's actually specifically towards the end. And I might just read a little bit of that where you say, um, for 10 years, I thought I could outrun my past, but today I realize that running isn't working. I need to do something else. I need to fix this, fix myself. For 10 years, I thought I could outrun my past, but today I realize that running isn't working. I need to do something else. I need to fix this, fix myself, to revisit my story, one that has until now relied on lies of omission, perfectionism, and false happy endings. I need to stop being an unreliable narrator. I need to look at myself, my behaviors, and my desires with an unflinching, meticulous eye. I need to tease apart the careful life I've crafted for myself, the one that's threatening to unravel at any minute. And I know where I have to begin. Every villain's redemption arc begins with their origin story. It's interesting because you then say every villain's redemption arc begins with their origin story. And I, I do believe I understand why you're cheekily referring to yourself as the villain. Mm -hmm. Because with, with CPTSD, the internal narratives coinciding with our trauma can be tricky to live with. There must be instances where you hang on to, or at least did, at the inception of this book or while writing this prologue, where you temporarily hold yourself responsible, or at least deserving of the pain you lived with for so long. Am I kind of hitting on something there? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, I immediately villainized myself. And I immediately thought that like all of the success that I had gotten in my life, which, you know, I, I correctly identified that I had used it to mask my trauma and to think like, everything is fine. I don't have any trauma. What? I'm so successful. It's fine. None of my success even matters. It's all just like a byproduct of my trauma. I'm just like a horrible person. It just, I, I was it, reading the list of pathologizing symptoms on the internet. I immediately cast myself as the worst person to ever live. And so... Yeah, I needed to go back and cast myself as the villain and like delve deep into my origin story to find that in fact, no, I still had done a lot of healing throughout my life. I am not a terrible person. There are wonderful things that make me an incredibly loving, generous, good person, including things that are born from my trauma. In, I guess sometimes in a panic attack, I can have an emotional flashback, which is taking me back to the emotions of what it was like to be abused in that moment in terms of fear, panic, sadness, self-loathing. I would feel those feelings at totally inappropriate moments where I might not actually be facing threat and not feeling those feelings when I was recounting moments of legitimate trauma in my life. That would become a complete blank. So then everyone can see you as being, hey, this person's showing up today to this event or to work today. They're functioning. They must, they must be fine. 
So then you have this further layer of dissociation where you're living in your body around people and you're not feeling fine. So in that instance, let's just say someone who's listening to this, who let's say they're a family member, like a sibling or a parent or a long-term romantic partner, what advice would you have for them if their child or their, like whether it's biological or adoptive, or if their partner suffers from complex PTSD, untreated or not, how do you feel that they can be supportive to them? Because on the outset, they may think, oh, this person's functioning just fine, they're doing great. And most people don't, I mean, they really don't know anything about just PTSD on itself, but then complex is this whole other, whole other thing. And then you can also have other diagnoses on top of those. So how can they be supportive to someone? Yeah, I think, you know, sort of reading some literature to sort of understand what the, like, the brain science behind what's happening to them, it can be really helpful because sometimes triggers might happen at random moments, seemingly random to you. You might be like, well, there is no threat here, so why, why is there a trigger? Just saying like, hey, there's no threat here. Like, you're acting crazy right now. You're, you're being triggered. That's not necessarily going to help because they might not understand that they're triggered at the moment. Even being called crazy is further pathologizing and will just drive them further up the wall. So I think knowing them well enough, I think, to understand what calms them down and having like a lot of conversations with them about like, what can bring them into their body and what can be grounding for them can be really helpful. Trying to have conversations with them to encourage them to ask for what they need. And so maybe that might be physical touch or maybe it's the opposite of physical touch. Maybe they just need like five minutes alone or maybe it's something like, hey, let's let's just breathe together for a second or Maybe it's something like, hey, I'm gonna get you some water or I'm gonna get you juice or something or an ice cube because ice cubes and things like wasabi, things like that like can sometimes sort of shock your body into being in the present and just understanding what's really happening. It, like the important thing is to sort of make your partner feel safe, just communicating that they are safe and they are loved. And that can be hard sometimes and you're in the middle of a fight and you really hate them in that moment. <laughs> But it, it's really important to sort of get them on the same page of seeing the appropriate amount of threat. For sure. I think just the willingness to listen and be open and talk about it. But then, yeah, most importantly, that safety, because so much of even the healing process, and you know this, that just because, let's say, you've been doing therapy for a decade, just because you've tried EMDR, just because you you meditate or you have all of your the numbers in place that you can call if you're in a crisis moment, you still need someone to support you in that moment to mm -hmm. help help keep you safe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I ask for certain things from my husband all the time, and sometimes I need space in order to figure out what I'm feeling and what I need. That can be really important too. Just being like, let me just breathe a second. So instead of just having like thoughts of like, ah, screw you or screw me in my head, just being like, <laughs> what am I actually, oh, I think I might be, I think I might be sad right now. I think that might be the feeling. I think I might be feeling kind of like lonely and I need like some support. That's what I need. Yeah. I think maybe I just need like company. Maybe I can ask if we can like watch TV, you know? So 
it's easy for certain people, maybe people without complex PTSD to be like, hmm, this is how I'm feeling and this is what I need. But we need a little extra support to be able to even get there sometimes. There's lots more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Stephanie Fu, and we're chatting about her book, What My Bones Know. Do you want to know your diagnosis? I blink and stare at my therapist. I've been her client for eight years. My sessions with my therapist, whom I'll call Samantha, began when I was 22. When I lived in San Francisco and needed help with a very San Francisco problem, an INTJ tech nerd boyfriend. I looked out with Samantha. She was acerbic and clever, but loving. She'd always make time for an emergency session after a breakup, and she even bought me a beautiful leather-bound travel journal before my first solo trip abroad. My sessions with her quickly moved beyond boy talk, and we began discussing my months-long bouts of depression and my constant anxiety around friendships, work, and family. Weirdly enough, my experience with people is that someone who who has been through this and who understands their diagnosis and understands all those placeholders, you end up becoming so proficient at being able to describe your feelings that then you can be experiencing a moment and you can just live through it objectively. You can actually be experiencing a panic moment and go, yeah, this is actually what I need right now. I'm freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you be, you be, it's kind of like dissociating. It is dissociating to a certain extent. Right. You're, you're having that out-of-body experience yeah. while it's occurring. You're like looking down on yourself and being like, oh, wow, she's not okay right now. <laughs> yeah. And I had that moment in earlier stages with my partner. And this was something I really was important to me to work out with before we, you know, lived together because she has two daughters. And this was something that was important to me because I grew up in a very angry household. So it was like, we need to understand what brings this other person safety and how we can really foster a home that feels safe for right. everyone, right? Especially just for your feelings alone. You can just feel your feelings mm -hmm. and without necessarily it having uh, long-term damage. Do you want to know your diagnosis? Samantha had asked brightly, her face glowing like a moon on my screen. And when she said complex PTSD, she tossed it off so casually that I just shrugged in response. Oh, okay. She wouldn't have waited eight years if it was that important, right? How bad could it be? So after our session, I Googled it. I clicked on the Wikipedia page, then the Veterans Affairs website, and saw the list of symptoms. People with complex PTSD have trouble holding down jobs and maintaining relationships. People with complex PTSD are needy. People with complex PTSD see threats everywhere and are aggressive. They are more likely to be alcoholics, addicts, violent, impulsive, unpredictable. Most of these symptoms rang true for me, but it was the hyper-specific ones that freaked me out. Like the idea that CPTSD patients spend their lives in, quote, relentless search for a savior. How could they have known about that? Somehow, this Wikipedia entry called it. Every time I met someone new who seemed wise and stable and kind, I wondered if they might be the answer to things, if they might be the new best friend who'd finally cracked the code, the one who would make me feel loved. I thought this was a weird but very personal trait of mine. And this whole time, it had been a medical symptom. 
That prologue was just really me putting myself in what being diagnosed felt like. Like my whole world was being cracked open. Like my whole, I couldn't trust anything about myself. I couldn't trust anything about my past or anything about my present, like who I was, why I did what I did. Like if anything I'd ever done was okay or if it was all like secretly evil or just like my whole own story just seemed like a lie. Like a lie, like a lie, like a lie because I had been telling myself my entire life that I was totally okay and like over my trauma. And I just like clearly wasn't. Yeah, because you are a human and every human goes through their life making choices or I- events where you're like, cool, I, I feel regret about that. I don't feel good about that thing. But when that's so tied up with this reactive, this very reactive diagnosis that Early on, before you really know what it is, you feel like you can't control it. All of a sudden, that's tied in now with your choices. So things that maybe normally you wouldn't put a whole lot of self-blame on, now you put an extraordinary amount on there. Right. And things that may have been easier for some people to move through, instead this becomes sort of crippling. And you replay a lot of these events over in your head. Hey, there's still more chatting ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with author Stephanie Fu, and we're chatting about her book, What My Bones Know. At this point, now that you the, the book is out, the book is written, and it belongs to other people for them to take with them, how does that story continue for you? Is this something that continues to evolve for you and you're documenting? Or do you feel at least some level of peace and maybe there's a newer stage of it that you're moving into? Yeah, the one really, really valuable thing that has happened is I get probably at least around a dozen messages on average, maybe a day, from people saying, this has been hugely impactful to me. You got it exactly right. This saved my life. This inspired me to actually start my healing journey. This inspired me to go to therapy. This inspired me to finally tell my husband about my trauma after you know a decade of being married. These incredible messages where people are saying, yes, you got it right. I feel exactly the same way and I'm ready to start healing because I have hope now. It's really, it's validating first of all, because I felt so alone and like the only person in the universe who felt these feelings when I was first diagnosed because I didn't know anyone else with complex PTSD. I couldn't find any personal stories about it on the internet. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm a total freak. And now people are reaching out to me from all corners of the world who are like therapists or farmers or, you know, customer service representatives or to people who are like at really fancy elite institutions all saying like, no, I have it, I have it, I have it. So that's really great. And the other thing is 
regardless of how much I've healed, I think to some degree my complex PTSD causes me a little bit of pain, at least every single day. Sometimes a little bit of pain, sometimes a lot of pain. It's not a pleasant thing to live with, but it definitely feels like, well, all that pain and suffering birthed something important. It's that whole wounded healer thing. It did give me the ability to hold out a flashlight for those who are coming behind me. And in some ways, I don't want to say it's worth it, but it's 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 a beautiful thing that pain can be transformed into something helpful in that way. And I feel really grateful for that opportunity. Well said. Stephanie, I super appreciate you being able to sit down and chat with me today. I'm excited for our listeners to hear you read your book. And please, everyone, go out there and pick up a copy for yourself. Thanks again, Stephanie. Thank you. I really... This was a very unusual interview compared to all the other interviews I've been doing. (laughs) You know what's funny is I actually... I, it's so funny that I've been told that <laughs> the last the last two times I've had uh, chats with authors. I, I, you know, I came into this very unconventionally with just, I mean, podcasts in general. I started out writing, and writing was a big tool for me for healing as a teenager. And then I grew up in my early 20s. Tw- it took mo- most of my the first half of my 20s to get through what was a lot of anger and anger came from growing up in a very violent household like when you talk about your parents um, putting a I I don't want to bring it up because you already brought it up and that's and that and I don't necessarily want to bring up all those visceral details for you but I have very similar memories of weapons being used and then trying to keep one under my mattress and like just feeling scared all the time. And so now raising kids, it's so bizarre because I can never imagine Mm -hmm. putting them in in a scenario like that. And all I do is want to keep them safe, my partner safe, myself safe. And in, in reality, I'm still the one who sometimes just does not feel safe. If emotions are really rised up and maybe they're throwing a tantrum maybe there's anger or something like in and they're having a crazy day i feel this like my hairs get raised on my body and i just get tense and uncomfortable and it's because i i want to escape that anger and i think hopefully you know that's generally the response as a kid that you grow up in a household like that and you don't want to go back to it you want to create a safe environment but that's not everybody does that. Not everybody wants to continue to create a safe environment. So I'm very appreciative that that is your goal. I'm appreciative that the time you spend when you're not writing and helping others, that you're helping out with clear invasive species or that you're volunteering. I think that that sounds like you're involving yourself in your body and that must be healing and meditative for you in those acts. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. That's great. Well. Um, Thanks. And thanks for letting me rant there. (laughs) I feel ya. Thank you to Stephanie Fu for chatting. You can purchase a copy of her book, What My Bones Know, available now at your favorite local bookseller. Thank you to our friends at Penguin Random House, Carrie Neal, Courtney Mocklow, Ellen Follen, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance is by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift from the Podglomerate. Audio cleanup is by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Belltill. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. 
Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. See you then. Conglomerate, a sonic universe.